Our scripture reading today comes from Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 37. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Seraphonician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon had left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon and the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them all to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Nate. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, so when I was around four years old, my mother told me this story that um, she was really proud of me because I was one of those kids that was not into watching TV, just wasn't interested. And then something happened. I went to an eye doctor. <laughs> and... I got these glasses, and if you look at old pics, like it really does kind of look like two Coke bottles, um, because all of a sudden I could see, and everything changed, right? Because all of a sudden I could see clearly, and so the TV was very interesting for the very first time. Um, I'm 45, and this last summer, uh, I went for an eye appointment. I've got contacts now, and I go through the exam, and if you've ever been through an exam, it feels weird, but like you really want to do well, you know what I mean? Like it's like it's a, it's like this test. You want to do well. You want to read the letters, and I was doing great with the distance stuff. And then they pulled up the little mini ones, like the like the really close ones, and I was like, wasn't doing as hot. And then the the eye doctor put in front of me. I had my contacts in, a couple lenses, and all of a sudden the letters just popped, and I could see clearly. And that meant one thing, I needed these, which are readers. I needed readers so I could read up close. And what's fascinating about that is, is I didn't even know I needed them. I thought for so long I was reading clearly and I could see clearly, and yet at some moment, it all of a sudden dawned on me, I couldn't see. Uh, why am I telling you this? Uh, on the one hand, it helps you know why I put these on and off throughout the sermon, uh, but secondly, and most importantly, as we think about this Advent season, here's our hope and our prayer, that we might collectively 
see Jesus. Now, and I say that, and that can perhaps sound trite, or that can perhaps sound simple, but it is anything but that. Here's what I mean. If you're going to see Jesus for who he is, the scriptures say it comes down to one thing. You need faith. That's what you need to see Jesus. And that is not simple, as we're going to see, and that is not easy, as we're going to see. A couple quotes here. Flannery O'Connor, she's a Christian, American novelist, short story writer. She actually won the 1972 National Book Award for Fiction. But she's writing about the first novel that she wrote, and she said this, It's hard to believe always, but more so in the world we live in now. Do you see what she's saying there? James K. Smith, he, he writes this, he says, Faith is fraught. Confession is haunted by an inescapable sense of its contestability. And what O'Connor and, and Smith are, su- are suggesting is that faith in our current moment, the times we live in, it's not easy. It's not easy to see Jesus. And so, one of the things we'd like to say here often at Redeemer City is if you're new, maybe even if you're here and you're not a Christian, we really hope these next five weeks of Advent help you, wherever you are, come to see Jesus more clearly, who he is. But the second thing I'll say this, if you're a Christian, oftentimes, like Smith and O'Connor suggest, it's hard to believe And what we want to see happen these next few weeks is that you and I would collectively see more clearly who he is. And for that to happen, let me take you back into the eye doctor appointment. And you remember the moment where you're sitting down and they put the alien instrument on you? You know what I'm talking about? It's a, I think I have this right, it's a phroopter is what it's called. If I'm wrong, uh, someone can tell me. But um, we've got a few doctors here. But the phoropter, if you know this, it's, it's the point of the exam where the optometrist says one or two, three or four. And you have to tell them, right, what do you see more clearly? So our phoropter for this Advent season, for the first three weeks, is going to be the Gospel of Mark helping us see clearly who Jesus is as we watch others stumble and bumble to actually believe in Jesus, even those who are close to him, struggling to see him. And then the last two weeks, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, looking at what happens. What happens in a person's life when you see him? So, as we get in this morning, let me pray, and we'll get into our text. So, Let's pray. Father, um, we ask now, you are mighty, and you are good, and you are gracious. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see your Son. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would illuminate to our hearts, through your word, who he is. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we get in and continue in the Gospel of Mark, there are two things this passage tells us, and I'll put it in the form of two questions. 
This passage shows us what kind of faith sees Jesus. And secondly, how we get this faith. So, what kind of faith sees Jesus? And secondly, how does one get this faith? So, to begin, what kind of faith sees Jesus? Mark opens with an example of faith. And it's actually coming from an unlikely source. Jesus has traveled north to Tyre and Sidon, which is about 20 miles north of Capernaum, where he's been doing a lot of ministry. But we need to know, when he travels that far north, this is not like home country, okay? These are people that don't have the Old Testament. These are people that do not worship the God of Israel. In fact, that's why he's going north, because Jesus is just tired. He and disciples, they want to get away for some rest. And yet, even as Jesus gets into this region, he goes to a home, and this woman comes in. And what you have to know about this, first of all, is that this woman has zero credentials to be coming to Jesus. In other words, she has no business coming to Jesus. The text says she's Syrophoenician, which means she's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. Like I said, she, she worships a different God than the, the God of Israel. She's a woman in a patriarchal society. You didn't come to a Jewish rabbi like that. And lastly, her daughter has an unclean spirit. So by all customs and standards and social norms, there is no way that she should ever consider gaining access to Jesus. And yet, it doesn't matter to her. The text says she falls down at Jesus' feet and begins to beg Jesus to heal her daughter. And that word beg... It's in a verb form that means continually. She will not stop pleading at Jesus' feet. And here's why. She's a mom. As every mom would know, her heart is broken and troubled because her daughter is not well. And Jesus addresses her in verse 27. And look at what he says. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Uh, I don't know about you, um, but this does not seem like the Jesus we've been reading of. It doesn't sound like Jesus is being very compassionate here. It actually seems very offensive. Jesus uses a metaphor so what's, what's going on here? Well, first, you have to know this. This is not what Jesus is saying. There was a common vernacular to the day where Jews would call Gentiles dogs. That was to mean they were unclean, right? In our day, we love dogs. In that day, it was not good to be a dog, all right? This is a negative term. But Jesus uses a different term here, one that could be something like the word for puppy, which obviously sounds cute, right? But so when Jesus responds with a parable, a metaphor, he's saying something like this. Hey, when you gather around the table with your children, the kids eat first, and then the pets eat too. But what does Jesus mean by this? Well, in Matthew's account, there's an extended uh, version of this, and Jesus says these words. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. 
And what Jesus is saying is this, is his ministry, his particular focus was to Israel. Now, to understand why is to go back for a moment to the Old Testament, all right? And we see it there at the beginning, after sin and after death enters the world, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And he says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and the offspring from you, and from your offspring, all the nations will be blessed. All right? Now, this is where Israel comes from. And all of these promises, all of these covenants are all coming to fulfillment in Jesus. But Jesus' ministry has a focus. It has a priority. But that is not to the neglect of the nations, because for a moment, we'll see this later, but when Jesus rises from the dead, he actually sends all of his disciples to go to the nations. In other words, I want this news to go to the nations. So Jesus, response to this woman is basically this, there's a priority. I have a certain focus. And the question is, how will she respond? And this is what's most remarkable about this passage. This is the faith that is the example. It's remarkable. Look at verse 28. She says this, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. There's two things here. This is the faith that sees Jesus. Two things. The first is, She's humble. She actually accepts her position that Jesus gives her. She acknowledges she's not an Israelite. And, you know, Keller makes this note. This is, this is so true today. This is hard for our Western minds to grasp because we live in a moment where we assert our rights where we have a huge dynamic of wanting equality. It's one of the highest values in our cultural moment. And our most natural inclination in situations is to say this, this is what I'm owed. This is what I'm owed. But when the woman approaches Jesus, she doesn't assert her right. She recognizes that in a relationship to Jesus, she has no claim on him. The first part of seeing Jesus for who he is, it means we come humbly. We have no claim on him. But the second is remarkable because her response challenges Jesus. Um... Notice when she says, <laughs> yeah, sure, there's children's bread, but there's also the crumbs. And it's like she sees through this, his response to her, and she says, okay, here's the deal. There is a goodness to you. And even your crumbs can heal whatever ails my condition. She, in essence, is saying this, is there's more than enough of your goodness to go around. That even a crumb of what you intend to do in this world is more than sufficient for my daughter. Keller summarizes this way. 
He says this, she's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She's saying, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. And that's the essence. This is the kind of faith that sees Jesus. This is the kind of faith that approaches Jesus, the kind of faith that recognizes I've got no claim on him, and yet he is good. And notice what happens next. In verse 29, Jesus says, for this statement you can go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. Jesus honors her faith, this faith that's mixed with humility and boldness. So secondly, how do we get that kind of faith? The next account gives us two things that must happen if we're going to see Jesus and respond with a faith of boldness and humility. And Jesus travels on from Tyre Sidon to another region in the Decapolis, which yet again is not in Israel. It's a region made up of Gentiles, not of Jews. And this time... They bring a man who is deaf and had a speech impediment. And notice again, they too beg Jesus, will you heal him? And what's incredibly noticeable or unique about this healing is it's vivid. If you've noticed anything about the Gospel of Mark as we've gone through it, most healings are just quick. Jesus says a word. A woman grabs his you know, garment And instantly there is healing. But Mark slows things down. He goes into detail. Look at verses 33 and 35. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephtatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And what's unique about this is that in the next chapter, there's another healing. This time, it's a blind man. And this healing is also very vivid. Jesus spits again there. There's something about it. And he, puts his, he spits in his eyes and he puts saliva in the eyes and he touches his eyes. And commentators note this, the structure of Mark is saying something here. Because you'll notice something, the Syrophoenician woman, she has this amazing example of faith. And then right after the healing of the man who's blind... It's Peter's Peter's confession of Christ, of Jesus being the Christ. There's these two examples of faith, and on both sides, you have a miraculous healing that's very in-depth. And commentators note this, this is a visual aid. Do you know what visual aid is? It's like, right, it's it's um, it's the prop, it's the whiteboard, it's a video that could be pulled up to show a point. Commentators note this, that Mark is showing us, like the man who is deaf and mute who could not hear, and the man who is blind and could not see, it takes the miraculous intervention of God to open up our hearts, to open up our ears, to open up our eyes to see Jesus for who he is. 
In other words, you can't do this on your own. What does that mean? Well, let me put it this way. If you're a Christian this morning, is it because you're smarter than everybody else? I want to tell you it's not. Your faith is a gift. God has miraculously intervened in your life to open up your eyes and illuminate for you the person and work of Jesus. It is a gift. It is a miracle. You could not hear apart from him opening your eyes and your ears. And that should give you humility. But secondly, if you're not a Christian this morning, what does that mean? Let me put it this way. If you even have an inkling of pursuing Jesus, that's not normal. Can I tell you that? It's not normal. In fact, I would submit to you that that is evidence that God is already at work in your life. But secondly, I'll say this. In the book of Mark, there is 46 times this word hear is used. And one of the things Mark is trying to show us is that you need to hear. You need to hear. And it always comes in contrast to being Jesus and his word. And here's what I would say. If you're struggling to believe, even this morning, it means don't neglect putting yourself in a place to hear from Jesus and his word. That means, in one sense, like, join the corporate gathering, hear the word read and taught. Perhaps it means to sit around with other people who are working out this faith and opening up the scriptures. But don't neglect it. But the second thing Mark shows us is that this healing is a sign. Um, this summer, uh, a man and I, my wife and I, we, we traveled overseas and we had a connection in Heathrow. And I thought it was going to be the easiest connection because, of course, it's English. And the signs were so confusing. And we went to the wrong, like the wrong complex. There's so many around there. Went to the wrong place and almost missed our connection. So this is literally me just complaining that I'm not the one that's to fault here. But the signs were confusing, okay? But Mark is wanting to show us a sign. He's wanting to show us where to look. He doesn't want us to miss. He does something here. The word used for deaf and could hardly talk is a single Greek word. And the only other place it's used in the scriptures is in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 35. And notice what it says. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, And the ears of the deaf unstopped, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This passage is taken out of the section in which the prophet is saying, when the king finally arrives, this is what's going to happen. The deaf and the mute are going to hear and they're going to sing. And Mark is saying, don't you see? Don't you see? He's come. And here's why this is so different. One of the things that's most challenging about our present world 
why faith is so challenging is that what we most often hear is look within yourself. Look within. If you want faith, look within. And then if, if you want to, see what's in there and then look out and sort of find something that's helpful out there. Just grab what's helpful for you. And what Mark is showing here is that that will not work. That will not work. You need to look outside of yourself and all of the lights, all of the arrows. Mark is being clear. It's all focused on him. It's all on Jesus. He's the one who's come to rescue. But there's one more thing. The verse before Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 says this. This is verse 4. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And notice for a moment there. Um, it says God's going to show up and he's going to save you. But then it says he's going to come with vengeance. And what's interesting, right, <clears throat> is that if you read the Gospel of Mark, you don't see Jesus coming with vengeance. You see him coming with grace and kindness. So where's the vengeance? Where does he pour out this righteousness, this righteous judgment on this world? And the answer, at the end of Mark, you learn this, that in his first coming, the king came not to bring judgment, but he came to bear it. In other words, point blank, this is the point. The point is this, is that we, although we have sinned and we deserve the vengeance of God, God has come and sent his son Jesus to save us, to bear our penalty. Because we've sinned. And this is what, and right here, this is what changes everything. This is actually how you can approach God with humility and boldness. Let me put it this way. Our default setting is to relate to God transactionally. That's my default setting. That's your default setting. It is basically this. It is to try to be good. It is to try to perform and then make yourself in some measure presentable to God and then in response, have him say, all right, I got you. I will bless you. But don't you see what Mark is showing us here? Mark is showing us that won't work. We don't bring anything to the table. And that's really good. Because here's the other part. Some of us, we know we don't measure up. Some of us, we know that we're no good. We're below average morally. And that's the problem, too, because if that's the case, then we don't actually come to him because we don't think he really wants to be with us. But don't you see his goodness here? You see, there's either two sides. There's either self-righteousness in transactional relationship with God, or there's self-loathing. But if you see Jesus for who he is, then it undercuts, it undercuts the righteousness, because it's not our righteousness, it's his and it undercuts our lack of even coming to him because you see his goodness because he would give his son. In short, if you see Jesus for who he is, 
It's the sight that enables you not to rely on your goodness, but to boldly approach him based on his goodness. Listen, if you're not a Christian this morning, in, in one measure, it's, it's simple. It's look to Christ. It's rely on Christ and what he has done for you. It's all on him. He comes to save. You can't save yourself. But secondly, if you're a Christian, do you know what this means for you? I imagine last night or this morning, you woke up and there was a headline playing in your mind. It might have been an anxiety. It might have been a fear. It might have been a weariness or a heavy heart. Do you know what that means? Thomas Goodwin once wrote that Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. In other words, come. Come to him with your emptiness. Come to him and rely on his goodness with whatever, whatever is grieving you. At the end of this text, Jesus responds, and all they can say is this, he has done all things well. He has done all things well. That's who Jesus is. Do you see him? Let's pray. Father, we, um, we confess that we doubt your goodness. We confess that we minimize your greatness. And yet, Lord, we see in this passage that you are inviting us to come to you as we are, relying on your goodness. And so, Lord, whatever hinders that in our life, would you subvert it in the best way possible? Lord, in the midst of this season, we pray with all the lights, with all the distractions, that we might see you. And so we pray now that you'd enable us to come with the eyes of faith that see you afresh. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.